KBLA Talk 1580. Excited to welcome my guests into the space. Um, they're an award-winning professor of political science at Syracuse University, a columnist for Teen Vogue, where they write the popular Speak On It column, which talks about how today's social political life is influenced by generations of racial and gender disorder, um, uh, queer gender flux, androgynous black uh, person, um, who researches black politics with a focus on feminism, racial trauma and threat, gender, sexuality, social movements. Uh, Dr. Jen M. Jackson, welcome. Yes, thank you for having me. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for stopping in today. Um, congratulations, you have just released your very first book, Black Women yeah. Taught Us. Yes, it's coming out next week on Tuesday, January 23rd. Oh, I, I think it's just released because I have a copy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, I, and I've been reading. So to me, it's just released. But it's coming out when, actually? Yes. January 23rd on Tuesday. Okay, so next week you can get it. I'm not giving you my mm -hmm. copy. Um, the, the, <laughs> the song, the, the um, song, the book is... Black Women Taught Us an Intimate History of Black Feminism. And mm -hmm. you really kind of do like a survey of some mm -hmm. of the most influential feminists. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so tell me kind of like your thinking on this. Were you feeling it's, it's, it almost feels like a textbook or, um, mm -hmm. you know, or, or a, you know, an entry, not, I don't want to say entry level, but a place to start for people who aren't as familiar with um, black feminism. Um, what was, mm -hmm. when you thought about doing this, what was your goal in um, writing this? Yeah, I mean, I think that your two descriptions here are important. I teach this course for undergrads and graduate students right now at Syracuse University. I've taught this course for a number of years. And it comes out of my own uh, efforts as an undergraduate looking for a course on black feminist politics or black feminist uh, theory. And there wasn't, there wasn't any at USC back in 2002. So this book uh, really is a consolidation of my course that I teach now so that people don't have to be on these college campuses scouring these course catalogs looking for courses that will teach them about this important history or, you know, walking through libraries and bookstores hoping to find one of these books. Instead, these histories are all in one place. And, you know, I include a reading list and some additional scholars. I do a lot of citation in the book so that folks can actually follow the reading list and find other Black feminists who are not necessarily included in the chapters of the book, but whose work is important as well. So this is really to help folks get started. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like what you were you were looking almost trying to make a roadmap. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly what I was trying to do. And you know why? Because that's what happened for me. You know, when I was trying to figure this out as a young person and locating myself, I'm a black, queer, gender flux, androgynous black woman, right? For me, I grew up gendered as female, and I have a deep connection to femininity and womanhood, but I also was, was working through what it meant to feel 
uh, a different relationship with gender, a different relationship with sexuality. And I didn't have reading material to help me with that. My, my family could only do as much as they could growing up in Oakland. You know, folks had the language that they had. We grew up in church. You know, we mm-hmm, had what we had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this book is really in hopes, right, that people can pick it up and see themselves reflected back, no matter how they express their gender, how they express their sexuality, how they express their womanhood. It's to say it's all important. It's all expansive. And it all counts, right? It's all a part of what makes us who we are. I mean, I feel like it's also, you know, um, partly our job to help people get there. I mean, I I know it is partly my job because I'm on the radio every day. But I think I would put that on you, too, as a scholar, because it's not just a personal journey for you, um, you know. And I think that, sure, we have some resistance to change or resistance to learning. But I also think there's a fear of asking the questions that lead to being able to understand. And that understanding is necessary mm-hmm. for respect, right? So, right. And, and, and some of it seems confusing. Um, you use the pronouns they, them, um, and, you, and you say you're an androgynous woman. You don't say androgynous person. I do. You, you still yes. say woman, but you say they, them. That's right. Right there, for, for a lot of folks, that's confusing. Uh, maybe you can unconfuse us. <laughs> I would love to explain that, right? So I think, um, and this is something I do touch on a bit in the book, but, you know, thinking about womanhood and how we construct these, these categories and these boxes for ourselves, they're all constructed in ways that are, are institutional or that are based in the state. The state is, is the government. Their, their interests are in organizing us for capitalistic labor, right? So when black folk were uh, abducted from Africa and brought to this country, brought to the Caribbean, brought to uh, various parts of the Western world, they were brought here and identified in a binary way in order to increase the property ownership of white slave owners. But that's not how we lived our gender and our heritage and our identities in our original way. And so for me, while I identify with womanhood, right, with the container that says that uh, I navigate the world um, in a particular body with a set of experiences that are, are based in social uh, conditioning, right? Because gender is a, is a social category. I also know that in that category, for me, there are times when I don't really feel gender at all, right? There are times where um, I don't actually feel, like, and I talk about this like this, I, don't, I didn't feel like a girl growing up. I remember walking up to my mom and saying, hey, mom, am I a boy? <laughs> like, what is this? I'm so confused. Wow. And it wasn't until I was much older that I discovered transness and I discovered something called gender fluidity and gender flexness and the ways that we can slip through and slide through gender in different ways, depending on how we are being socialized. And so that feels more comfortable for me. When I talk about androgyny, androgyny is, is how I express my gender. So I am not a hyper feminine person. I don't express, I'm six foot four to start off with. So first of all, it was already hard for wow. me to express a feminine gender identity because none of the clothes fit. <laughs> so it was already a difficulty. Um, but I've always had a kind of more masculine frame. 
I've always, I played sports, you know, I've always, I had cornrows, you know. And so for me, femininity was something that was often denied because of the shape and the size of my body. So I describe myself in terms of the adjectives, right? The I'm a lesbian, I'm androgynous, I'm gender flux. Um, but the noun here is woman, right? The person here, I'm a woman, but there are all these ways that I express my womanhood that come from how I move through the world. And just, I don't want to, you know, make the, the whole show about this or veer down this road too much, unless you do, but um, explain the difference <laughs> between, you know, uh, gender fluid and gender flux, because that may be new for some folks. Yeah, they're, they're pretty similar. So they're all under the uh, trans umbrella. Um, it's uh, words for people who are non-binary, so who do not find themselves under any one category of gender, but who sometimes experience uh, multiple genders. So people who are gender fluid may feel as though they kind of move across gender, male and female, um, at, at different times. So for them, they don't necessarily feel tethered um, to one gender at all times. Gender flux is very similar, except that in gender flux identity, uh, you typically feel one gender more strongly than others. Um, and so I've typically identified as gender flux because I do identify as a woman. Um, but how I, I, I express my gender and how I feel in my body, there are times where I feel no gender at all. So I fluctuate between a gender, you know, no gender at all, and feeling very much a woman. So um, back to your book, right? You, I mean, because yes. because what you're uh -huh. what you're lifting up is black womanhood, uh, black feminism. I am. And, um, and we started off talking about how it was a roadmap. When we come forward, I want to really talk about some of the women and movements that you highlight, why you chose those more than others, and, you know, how we can do a better job of, um, of lifting up uh, black feminism, black womanism, uh, you know, and... and, and how that sometimes gets, um, I think now, especially right now, with the social media moments that we're having, gets uh, becomes a target of misinformation, disinformation, and um, really some kind of um, resistance campaigns uh, that I think distort what feminism is, what womanism is, and the work of, of black women. I, you, you know, I, I consider myself a feminist, um, and I get a lot of pushback from that, even though I'm not gender fluid um, or gender flux or, or, or non-binary or, you know, I'm just, but clearly even just saying I'm a feminist, I'm a black woman, I'm unapologetically feminist um, has been controversial. Uh, so I want to look at that as well and how we can get a more honest understanding of what black feminism really is and the roots of it, which of course is very well outlined in your book, Black Women Taught Us. We're talking with Dr. Jen Jackson and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. <laughs> 
KBLA Talk 1580 is an intervention. When we come forward, includes you. KBLA Talk 1580, turning pain into power. power. Dominique DePrima on KBLA Talk 1580. Talking with Jen Jackson. Dr. Jackson is an award-winning professor of political science, a uh, columnist for Team Vogue, and the author of Black Women Taught Us, um, which is out next week. Um, this this piece really gets specific about a number of black feminists, black women. Of course, you can't uh, <laughs> you can't highlight everybody in one book, um, and you clearly um, made you know made some choices. Uh, you said this is pretty mm-hmm. much your class, um, mm-hmm. but um, talk to me about how you chose the women that you highlight in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really important question. So um, this, this, is, this is similar to my class, but there are some here that are not included in my course. So um, I start the book off with Harriet Jacobs and I talk about freedom. I move into conversations um, with, for instance, Ida B. Wells and Truth, which these are directly from my course. But I talk also about some literary scholars, and even though Zora Neale Hurston was an anthropologist, um, we also know her very well for her fiction writing. And I have a, a chapter here on Zora Neale Hurston. The reason why I focus on Zora Neale Hurston is because not just for the writing and the work she did, but the life she lived, right? Very few people know that Zora Neale Hurston died of malnutrition. Very few people know that she lived a very difficult life of poverty. Um, and when she returned to her community, that she was really shunned by her family and that it took Alice Walker finding her unmarked grave for us to recover her work. So really, Hurston is included in the book because she is exemplary of the ways that Black women's labor so often gets erased and misremembered and excluded from the archive but for other black women, you know? Um, I include folks that I think people know, like Fannie Lou Hamer, Shirley Chisholm, Ella Baker, you know, people who have received a lot more attention and scholarship over the years. But when I was writing this book, Toni Morrison passed away. Um, And I'm a political science scholar, so we don't really talk about novelists, but Toni Morrison has been critical to my life. So that's the other part of this book, is that it's, it's absolutely kind of academic in a way, but it's also uh, following the journey I took as a young person getting to these, these lessons. I read Zora Neale Hurston. I read Toni Morrison at the foot of my mother's bed. These were books that she had, you know, their eyes were watching God I got from the library when I was 11. I read Sula from my mom's bookshelf. You know, I was reading these books because my mother was not a, a trained black feminist but she loved to read black women's fiction. And so in some ways I'm bringing them into the book to also say that, you know, we don't always learn that black feminism in a a formal collegiate classroom, right? We learn it from our foremothers in our neighborhood. We learn it from our aunts. We learn it from our mothers. We learn it from the poet down the street. Um, and the last chapter, which I think is probably the one that was the hardest for me to write and the one that I still struggle to read out loud, um, is on Bell Hooks. And I had to admit when I wrote it in the book that I, I did not originally include a chapter on Bell Hooks. And that often surprises people. But I didn't include a chapter on Bell Hooks because 
I I didn't really engage with bell hooks as much until much later in my journey. And because I think I was also falling susceptible to what so many of us do, which is taking our foremothers for granted. Um, mm. She was very much alive when I started the book. She seemed like she was going to be here for a while. And then she was gone. And I felt this immense guilt that I had done the precisely the thing I had written this book to, to, to overcome. I had kind of overlooked her. And so that, that final chapter is really a eulogy and an apology for, for not even living my own words out in, in truth. And, and that's, that's how I selected all the people that, are, that I ended up including. Mm. I mean, as you, as you say, some are, you know, are more like household names, like Angela Davis, Toni Morrison. Angela Davis, um, right. You know, uh, who was my professor <laughs> in college at San mm-hmm. Francisco State. Um, and, and, and most people by now have heard of Fannie Lou Hamer, um, Ida B. Wells. But... Um, Still, like, as you point out, we don't necessarily know a lot about them. I think Harriet Jacobs, of of the people that you really um, talk about in this book, may be less widely known. Um, yeah. Talk about yeah. Harriet Jacobs, because it's a really interesting story. And also, uh, I think, in the company that you've put her in, in you know, having to select, mm-hmm. select from thousands of incredible black women... Um, Uh that alone kind of elevates, um, her stature, I think. Absolutely. Harriet Jacobs was a young woman who was one of the first, um, black folk to write about their experiences during slavery. Um, she wrote under a pseudonym and was writing to, uh, she was writing to Northern white women at the time. And it was essentially imploring them to end slavery. And the way she was doing this was she was telling about what it means to be a young girl who was enslaved. So she wrote this book, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And she tells how she had to constantly be on the run from her slaver. And it was both figurative and literal, right? So she's on the run from him in the slave household. But eventually she, she leaves the plantation, but she can't get very far. So she ends up in the attic of her mother, her grandmother's plantation home, which is not really an attic. It's a split. It's kind of a, uh, a pass through between the outside and the inner wall. And she can't really move. She can't really stand all the way up. There are rodents in the walls. Um, and she stays in the, in that split, in that attic for seven years. And during that time, she loses some of the movement in her limbs. Um, she's in the dark for most of the time, but eventually she escapes. And that attic, the, the analogy of the attic um, and freedom is so, was so poignant to me because it made me think about all the time as a young girl, right, or, or even in my 20s where I was kind of trying to find my way and I felt like I wasn't going anywhere. I felt like I was trapped, whether it be in my job uh, where people were being racist and misogynistic toward me every single day, but I had to be there because it was the only way I could feed myself. And I had to just stay. I was being underpaid. Um, and it felt like an attic. It felt like an in-between space, between somewhere where I thought I could be freer 
Um, but, but I had gotten, I had gotten somewhere, right? This attic for her was still better than the slave plantation, you know? And my students, they were struggling with this when I taught them about this because, you know, um, Harriet Jacobs talks about having freedom in that attic. And I remember one of my students, she was a black girl, and she said, Dr. Jackson, ain't no way, <laughs> ain't no way, there was no freedom in that attic. And I told her, I said, it's because we have to really think about what we mean by freedom. When we have freedom from something and we have freedom to do or to be something, those are different kinds of freedom. And we have to have more expansive definitions of what freedom is, if we're ever going to get free. We also and don't, I, I mean, we, we also I, don't have any real visceral understanding of what it's like to be constantly, um, you know, in peril of right. being raped, uh, whipped, right. murdered, right. having your children right. stolen, uh, right. all of those things day right. in, day out, day, to where lying in a tiny right. little space where you can't even stand up with rats running it's over you thing. is preferable to your daily life. That's it. That's it. Yeah, That's it. it's it's incredible. It's yeah. an incredible story. She also went on to be an abolitionist, um, and yes. you know, and and did play a role in in moving public opinion, uh, heading up sure to the did. Civil War, right? She sure did, and her book was critical in that because it was the first time that Northern white women learned of the conditions facing, because the question was, are these women? Do we believe that enslaved black women are women? And if we do. Is this fair treatment? And a lot of northern white women said absolutely not. So this was critical in that point of time. Yeah, so she she spent seven years in an attic, wrote her book, spent 10 years trying to get the book published. Uh, but when she finally did get it published, uh, it had a huge impact and, and was influential. And, you know, I think... That's one of the reasons that we do something around here called Freedman Fridays every week. It's one of the reasons why I am insistent on having the conversations about reparations. It is our conversation. It is our writing. It is our testimony and our normalization that can change minds, move hearts. And that's what we're going to have to do if we're going to get the repair and restitution that we deserve in this country, uh, just as, as, as this young woman had to do um, in order to get to abolition. Uh, so we are talking with Dr. Jen Jackson. We'll continue the conversation after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominic DePrima when we come forward. At KBLA Talk 1580, we do more than just talk. You got a big mouth. Hello, Joe, you're up. Welcome. We're unapologetically progressive and we don't black down. We do not, and we are talking with Dr. Jen Jackson, author of uh, Black Women Taught Us. It's a book coming out next week. It is an intimate history of black feminism. And I teed this up, but we didn't address it, so let's address it now. Why the smear campaign against feminism, womanism, um, it's particularly (laughs) in the black space. It feels very, very aggressive on social media. Um, I myself have been attacked somewhat for calling myself a feminist. I don't care, (laughs) but, um, Mm -hmm. but I, I do, I do feel concerned because when we get to disinformation, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, especially for younger people, um, and younger Mm -hmm. men, black men in particular, um, I think it can Mm -hmm. create an, a conflict that doesn't even need to be there. 
me saying I'm a feminist uh-huh. has nothing to do with your rights, your masculinity, your, it, it just, it's a statement about my politics. Yeah. You know, I think, okay, so there's a, there's a history here. There's a genealogy. So when we think about uh, feminism, we think about first wave feminism, we think about, you know, the white women who were fighting against their husbands and saying that they weren't property. Um, that was kind of the initial uh, idea of what feminism was. Over time, we moved into a new way, the second wave of feminism that was really about uh, women's uh, a right to work outside the home, women's rights to engage in, um, you know, voting and property and having uh, the same rights as men and also fighting in social movements. And as we've moved on toward the third wave and what some people call a fourth and fifth wave, we moved into the, the bodily rights, you know, the sexual rights. Um, and for black women in particular, uh, a lot of what has transpired is a lot of the feminist work that black women have done has really been focused on in the kind of post-civil rights era after the charismatic, you know, black male leaders like MLK and Stokely Carmichael and uh, Malcolm X, you know, have all come out and and led these movements, and there's been a tone set by that, right? There is this patriarchal um, idea that movements for Black folks should be led by Black men. And this has existed for some time. This actually was part of the reason why a lot of white feminists um, who were fighting for the vote we're so concerned when the Reconstruction Amendments were passed and allowed black men to vote before white women. So really... Yeah, there are in, probably in multiple reasons it, for that, but yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, sure, some of them were actually overtly racist as yep, well. Yep. Um, but there was also feelings that if anyone, if black men should not have the vote before white women. Well, and yeah, and, the, I mean, and that's part of the problem, too, is the, is the, is the racism within the white feminist movement um, as it originated and even, you know, in some quarters as it continues today, which gives people that want to divide us this wedge while well, you're over there with the white feminists who hate, you know, your man right. or whatever. And that's right. that's not what right. my feminism is. Right. That's it. And, and that kind of set a tone, right? That kind of set a tone for what feminism was and it was oppositional to to what black men in, in the moment in that moment who were leading these um, really important and critical movements for black liberation um, for what the kind of idea was about what feminism meant so as black women you know in the post civil rights era and especially black queer women who were coming out of the Kumbahi River Collective who were also in the book in the 1970s and the 1960s black women are emerging and they're talking about their their independence of black men, right? They're talking about being lesbians. And this doesn't present any usefulness, right? <laughs> to black men, black led movements to them, right? Some of them feel like, well, if you're, if you're a lesbian and you're over here fighting for lesbians, what are you doing for the black community? You know? And so there, there's wedge issues. Emerge. I mean, not to mention and the so fact now, that if you're a black woman and you're enslaved, working outside the home is not your number one priority. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have to be honest about this as well, right? We know that in our own communities, right, there's absolutely violence that Black women 
endure. One of the, if you look at the top 10 um, causes of death among black women today, one of the top 10 causes is uh, homicide, and that homicide is linked to intimate partner violence, right? This is something we don't like to talk about, right? It brings us immense shame, but it is a fact of our lives. So when a lot of black women were coming out and talking about their experiences in black communities, this was framed as anti-black men. Yeah. And that was associated with feminism, feminism being about being anti-black men, hating black men, trying to figure out ways to criminalize black men and point them as, out as deviant. Right. When right. in actuality, it's always been about making sure that black women were treated as humans. Yeah, I right? mean, great, and well said, and, and, you know, just the fact of, like, when I say, well, I'm, you know, I don't, you know, identify as whatever, non-binary or whatever, I'm not saying that to other you or other anyone, I'm saying that in, sure. in, in the context of, look, I am a black feminist and I'm a mama. I happen to love black mm-hmm. men. It's not even about that. Um, ben Frank mm-hmm. says uh, Malcolm was, f- he's in the in the YouTube chat. He says Malcolm was for human rights, for all, correct? And I do think a lot of the Absolutely. time when we look at our black leaders, uh, men, great black leaders in the space, my own father, Mary Baraka mm-hmm. included, there's a, many mm-hmm. times there's movement and evolution throughout the course of their lifetime and their political um, thinking uh, towards a more, feminist um, outlook coming from these men. And I think that's important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we have, I think that's very true, right? I think that a lot of these black male leaders actually were very feminist. That's why they were surrounded by so many women, right? I mean, Ella Baker emerges working right alongside MLK and Bayer Rustin, right? We know this is a fact. Um, But there are some overtly, there are some overtly misogynistic and problematic male leaders too. We have Uh, to talk about Huey Newton. Right. I mean, these things are also true. So it's, 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 it's complicated. And part of the reason why the term feminist has become so fraught is because unfortunately, a lot of folks aren't reading this history that is in this book, right? There's a lot of people who are not actually listening to black women. You know, Bell Hooks wrote a whole book about black masculinity that was really about thinking how black men can work in community with black women. And there are still people to this day who say that Bell Hooks hates black men. But if you read her work, it's it's so obvious that that's not the case. I mean, it's just, that's not the case. It's it's just nowhere (laughs) in the text. (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. And that's what it is. You know, I think that we have to do, we have to do more work here. And that's what I'm trying to do with this book is to really listen to listen and take the lessons and not take the ideology, right? Not take the, the narrative, like even the narratives around uh, identity politics and how that has become such a hot-button topic, when in fact all of us carry identity politics in our bodies, right? We all act on our identity. I always today. laugh at that phrase because white people have the ultimate identity politics. But they since, have the ultimate. But since white is the default, <laughs> like we give them a pass. Right, <laughs> right. It's astounding. And so really in this project, I'm trying to destigmatize yeah. right, a lot of these things. I'm trying to show that really a, a black women, you know, who are queer, who are under the trans uh, umbrella, who are, who are uh, poor immigrant, black women have been trying to survive a system that works to simultaneously make them hyper visible in ways that are extractive and harmful, but also tries to make them invisible in the ways that help them to survive, 
And we have to be very clear about that. We can't keep stigmatizing black women's lives and efforts to survive. Yeah. Because it's actually, it's actually killing us. It's killing us. And, and also, I feel like we can't, I would wish we would stop unnecessarily polarizing and pitting ourselves against one another. If I say I'm a feminist right. and you're a, you know, black man, uh, activist, I would love it if you would right. say, yeah, me too. And we can just right. pound, pound, pound and keep <laughs> it pushing, right? You're not right. excluded from right. that. Every, everyone is allowed right. to have uh, justice-centered philosophies. We can all, we're all allowed to participate right. in those. Right. Okay, I have a person in my family, um, well, at least one, actually a couple, that um, use they, them pronouns, young people. I, it seems like the younger generation's don't struggle with this at all, for the most part, at least not in my experience. But some of the folks in, in, in the family do, and it surprises me because they're progressive in their thought and they're justice-minded, and I know yeah. and, and, and I know they mean well, and they wouldn't call a cis woman he, and they wouldn't call a cis man uh-huh. she. And, uh-huh. and I, so for me, I don't get it. I, I understand you can make a mistake and accidentally, you know, if you're not used to calling someone they, them, then you, yeah, that to me, that's not a big deal. It shouldn't be a big deal. But uh-huh. explain why uh-huh. that's so important for people who just think, you know, I, I do think there are some people that yeah. just think you're playing games with their minds or you're being, you know, <laughs> sadiddy or something. Or why can't we just call yeah. you, you know, him, she, whatever I feel yeah. like saying on any given yeah. day. Right. You know, it's really interesting. I, I, I always um, make this analogy with people in their cars because people will gender a car, but they <laughs> find sure it so do. hard to respect the gender of a person. You know, oh, my car is she, or, you know, my favorite pen is he, you know. Um, the thing about using they, them <laughs> pronouns is that, for a, at least for me, I can speak for myself as a, a person with trans experience. When people use she, her with me, it's, I feel a visceral disconnect, right? Um, it doesn't feel good on my body, right? Um, and that is, and it's primary, it's in, it's in some spaces, I kind of allow it because I know people are working through things. Um, and but you pick your battles. I mean, you, you got to pick your battles. You pick your battles. With everything. You pick your battles. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. But for young people who, uh, you know, I've spoken with who use they, them pronouns, and this is my experience as well, for, for those experiences to, to be invalidated is a certain form of, like, identity violence, right? It's like you are, it's as if you are intentionally mis, mispronouncing someone's name, right? Because it's not about how you understand someone else's body, it's not about how you understand someone else's gender. It's how this person has come to understand themselves. And they are asking to be respected in their self-understanding, right? So if I go to someone and say, my name is Jen, and they proceed to call me by my birth name, right? That's a form of disrespect, right? People show you how to treat them. They show you how they like to be respected. And for a lot of queer and trans people, there is this kind of idea that those rules, those boundaries are, are more fluid. Those rules and those boundaries are not as important because in mass society, the norm is 
the binary. The norm is heterosexual, the norm, right? So when people are struggling, what they're really struggling with is they're struggling with removing that status quo behavior that says everyone has to fit into these pre-existing boxes. Otherwise, they're weird or, or there's something wrong with them, right? And whether they're doing it on purpose or not, right, it's still the programming, right? It's the socialization that we get as small children. I always remember watching Boss Baby with my kids years ago and seeing the scene where they take the children and they put them on a conveyor belt and they send the girls to the left and they put them in pink and they send the boys to the left and they put them in blue. And I was like, wow, they are programming my children so early, you know, like these are things that we are, we are socialized into so early that we don't even notice it. And when someone says, that's not how my body works, we look at them as if they are doing something wrong. When in actuality, the issue is, societally, we don't get to tell people how to navigate in their own skin. We don't get to label people. We don't get to tell them who they are. And all folks are asking for is to just name themselves, to just identify themselves. I'm I'm sure it's not what Dr. Neely Fuller was talking about or thinking of when he wrote the United Independent Compensatory Code System Mm -hmm. uh, for Ending White Supremacy. But I always go Mm -hmm. back to his book because he says, call people what they want to Mm -hmm. be called. Call people what they want to be called. It's really basic and it can apply to anything. Very simple. Yeah. and, And I think, you know, whether he meant it that way or not, when he talks about ending white supremacy, it applies to any hate of all kinds, and that's there are correct. some simple, basic, basic rules. That's correct. Um, you know, and that's one of the ones that I always refer to because people know the book. A lot of us who are black um, activists in the space mm-hmm. know that work. It's foundational. Mm-hmm. So if you don't listen to me, <laughs> listen to Neely <laughs> Fuller when he says, "Call people." what they want to be called. I'm talking with Dr. Jen Jackson, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580, where we're amplifying black and progressive voices around the clock. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. We knew you'd stick around. This is LA's home for progressive talk radio. Welcome back to KBLA Talk 1580. Welcome back indeed. We're talking with Dr. Jen Jackson, um, and their book is out right right now. Um, You can get Black Women Taught Us an Intimate History of Black Feminism. Seems like it would be a good place to start for Black History Month, for Women's History Month, Mm -hmm. for uh, birthday. Christmas, Halloween, Thanksgiving, <laughs> Juneteenth yes. presents, um, especially for, right. <laughs> you know, for students uh, who are, you know, looking, struggling, uh, seeking to get a more comprehensive understanding of the role of black women in the movement. Are you impacted, Dr. Jackson, by yet by this push against teaching black history, real black history, against diversity, equity and inclusion, against truth on campuses? So I'm not personally impacted. I'm lucky enough that I work at Syracuse University. It's a private university in upstate New York, and um, I'm able to kind of teach what I want. Um, However, I have quite a few colleagues across the country who have been in courtrooms, who have been fearful about being on their campuses, who have had to change their curricula, who have had to change their syllabi 
because of students reporting them. Uh, there have been complaints that they are too radical. Um, this is an ongoing concern, and it's another reason why I talk about this explicitly in the book. You know, it's in the, it's in the Ida B. Wells chapter on truth. I talk about the attacks on critical race theory and the attacks on teaching the truth of history in higher education. This is a, a mass conservative effort to water down our history because, you know, some people have said that their children are too fragile to learn these things, um, and they don't want them to, I guess, grow up and be, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be too too racy on your show but be too racy on my show it's fine (laughs) (laughs) i just you know there's a concern that young white children are not mentally prepared to hear the truth of their country right they can watch they can watch george floyd being lynched a hundred times and that's fine but yeah right and that's fine yeah yeah and and that's that's also not reflective of what i've seen in my classrooms i'll be honest Mm. with you i've been teaching this class for six years, and my classroom always is about 50% white. And I've had young white students come up to me and thank me profusely for making it a, a, a black space, a space where they are told to step back and to listen, where they are not prioritized, where they are not centered. They are the most excited to be there. They get some of the highest grades. So I don't know who these children are that they're talking about, but the young people, the young people of all races, they're not, they're not these fragile little babies. Well, I mean, we know it's the parents that are triggered. Are it's about. the parents that are triggered because they saw their kids in the street right. marching. Okay. So we're, we're, That's right. <laughs> we're tight on time here, but I wanted you to at least maybe do a 60 seconds on the um, Kambahi uh, River Collective is uh, so folks can get the book to learn more. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. The Kambahi River Collective, a group of black lesbians out of Boston in the 1970s who really wrote the first kind of black feminist manifesto to help us understand what intersectionality is. They told us about something called interlocking oppressions and identity politics. And they were the first to articulate that from us, for us from the ground up. They were talking about their experiences as working-class Black lesbian mothers. Uh, they are included in the book because that was the point where I, I learned uh, that my oppressions as a Black queer woman and a mother were all layered, and that the way that I was oriented to power was also affecting my own ability to access resources that were guaranteed by the government. Mm. And um, I know you write for um, Teen Vogue and probably write for a lot of Mm -hmm. um, young white people, but uh, young black people, I'm sure, (laughs) are invited in as well. Uh, Tell us how to find you, follow you, other than, of course, picking up the book. Yes, you can find me anywhere on the Internet at Jenem Jackson, Ph.D. I'm on Twitter or what used to be called Twitter. I'm on uh, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, um, everywhere at Jenem Jackson PhD, and my website is JenemJackson.com. And if you want to find out about the book tour, you go to JenemJackson.com forward slash books. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. I'm going to go to my quote. I like to end with a quote going to Audre Lorde. She says, it is not our differences that divide us. It is our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. Tavis Smiley is up next. He's got a full house for you today. Uh, I know it's going to be a great, great show. 
I'm Dominique DePrima. History is now, and we are making it together. I'll see you on the internets at KBLA 1580 and DePrima Radio. Until tomorrow, one love.